Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innalhamdulillah nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruh wa na'udzu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiati a'malina may yahdihillahu fala mudilla lahu wa may yudlil fala hadiya lahu wa ashhadu an la ilaha illallahu wahdahu la sharika lahu wa ashhadu anna muhammadan 'abduhu wa rasuluhu amma ba'd assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah uh, let me just get this chair in a better position Let's... Alhamdulillah. Okay, salams to uh, uh, um, the three of you, Sister Sabrina and Hassan and others who have logged on. Uh, we begin first and foremost by thanking and praising Allah. We praise Allah, we seek his aid and assistance, and we seek his forgiveness. And we seek refuge or prote protection in Allah from the evil whisperings to our own souls and our own evil resultant actions. Whomsoever Allah guides, none can misguide but whomsoever Allah leaves to stray none can guide that person aright and I bear witness and testify that none has the right to be worshipped except Allah alone having no partner whatsoever and I bear witness also that the Prophet Muhammad is Allah's final prophet and messenger <clears throat> with that said um, today's uh, theme and discussion is rolling uh, uh, across the bottom of our screens, uh, spiritual man and the material universe, trying to connect the dots. Spiritual man or religious man, but I didn't want to put the word religious uh, only because of in this day and age, uh, to talk about a religious person or religious individual doesn't kind of uh, it's more of a put-off than it is anything else. So I chose the, the title "Spiritual Man" in a or in the material universe. How are we, as human beings that are created for a higher purpose, to know Allah, to worship Him, to draw close to Him? How are we meant to be in the material world as spiritual creatures? Of course. Even before modern times, being trying to be a spiritual creature in a material world was always difficult, um, precisely because of what we've been discussing over the past few weeks. Uh, the dunya, the world, uh, tempts us and seduces us away from right guidance and obedience. Uh, one's ego or nafs does the same thing. Shaitan is forever whispering or trying to forever whisper uh, uh, into us to deflect us away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our whims and desires quite often just uh, ignite or get inflamed and uh, we can go um, off track and so the question of um, spiritual man in the material universe and I didn't want to discuss this from the angle of dunya because we, we kind of tackled uh, that issue um, about two weeks ago in the um, second uh, of three podcasts we did about uh, the, the believers four deadly enemies. Um, the way I wanted to discuss this is, um, well, if we look around, if we just take Britain today, Britain, and this could apply also to many of the countries in Western Europe. It will apply less to the United States of America, 
uh, and obviously less to uh, uh, the other countries in the world, especially Muslim majority countries. But here in Britain, as is the case with many other countries in uh, Western Europe, uh, the religious person is on the decline. Homo religiosus, the religious man, is on the decline. Um, we can quite comfortably say now, given the various statistics uh, that have been floating around and the various trends that have been happening since the uh, since at least the, the 1960s onwards, uh, we can comfortably say that Britain is now a post-Christian country. And in one sense, it's also a post-religious country. Uh, what do I mean? What I mean is simply that most people in the UK do not ascribe to being Christian in any uh, in any uh, convincing way or way of conviction. Christianity does hover in the background and it does indeed color some of our old traditions and ways of doing things. Uh, and the, sometimes a language that we may use. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, when it comes to guiding our legislation, steering our morals and ethics, uh, giving us a sense of purpose, uh, for all intents and purposes, Christianity plays absolutely no role in the majority of the people in the majority of lives of the people living in the UK. Uh, Christianity it seems to be diminishing as the statistics say in the U UK, uh, church congregation and church goers are diminishing, diminishing, diminishing. Um, it is being said that by maybe 2050, um, the number of Muslims in the UK um, might be equaling or com comparable, if not overtake the numbers of uh, of proclaimed Christians. Who knows? Well, Allah and Allah knows best. <clears throat> now, while someone may say, "Well, that's quite joyous," on the one hand, uh, if we were to step back a moment and kind of uh, think about those uh, implications. The implications have simply been that uh, Christian ethics, Christian morals, Christian family life, um, which are very similar to Islam's morals, ethics and family lives, life, has ceased to shape, has ceased to uh, mould or sculpt uh, the, uh, the national landscape. Um, what has replaced it? Uh, a very aggressive, secular, liberal individualism that may have had perfectly good intentions uh, when it started um, back in the in, uh, Enlightenment. Um, but actually, it was premised on people should do what they feel is best and not have any authority over them. 
um, and they should follow what they want to with no impediments. And if you leave human beings to just do what they want, and of course there is minimum interference of the law, the law tries to interfere in a minimalist way uh, in this project. But if you leave people to do what they want and follow their own ways, uh, we simply end up with a community or a society that simply doesn't know where it's going. Uh, one of the Stoic philosophers uh, at the beginning of the uh, first century of the of the common era, um, Seneca says that if you do a ship that knows not where it's going will not benefit from favorable winds. Uh, and that's more or less where we find ourselves uh, as a nation, that we have some level of material advancement, but purpose and meaning has been removed from our lives simply because the dominant narrative is uh, we're all here by cosmic chance and cosmic fluke. It's all a grand accident or a fluke that we're here in the first place. Life has no purpose. Life has no meaning. Uh, we just try to make the mean, make up the meaning as we go along, or have no meaning whatsoever, and live in uh, a state of angst and and despair. And what and the challenge that presents to us Muslims is twofold. Uh, the first one is. How do I, as an individual Muslim, remain connected to my Lord when everything around me, starting from uh, the messages that I receive when I'm a, a little kid through TV and, and movies and the Internet, to the messages I begin to receive when I, re when I enter into formal education, to the 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 just the 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 public sphere, uh, the environment around me, uh, always telling me something different to what God wants me to know or do. How do I, as an individual in that environment, and 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 remember, bear in mind, this environment is growing more and more ubiquitous uh, across the globe. With uh, with every with the passing of every day, uh, Muslim majority countries who maybe just 20, 30 years ago couldn't imagine that they would have a significant problem with atheism or secular humanism are finding that that is exactly what is happening, particularly to um, to many young people. Um, so the first problem is how do I connect, keep my connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is really what this is about. This is the Seekers and Sleepers podcast with that, with that ultimate question in this context. Are we seeking with the Seekers or still sleeping with the Sleepers? Are we journeying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, kun fi dunya ka'annaka gharibun aw abiru sabil, be in this world as though you are a stranger or a traveler, 
or are we still sleeping with the sleepers in a state of ghafla, of heedlessness, of neglect, um, as Allah SWT has told us not to do, and do, don't be of the heedless, of the people of ghafla, of heedlessness. One of the things that tends to be missing from our, I said there were two things. The first thing was my individual connection to Allah SWT. Then comes the issue of how do we give dawah uh, to, to, uh, to the wider society? Uh, Islam, the Quran and the Sunnah and the history of, of, uh, of the Muslims and Islam gives us pretty good um, direction on how we can engage the Ahlul Kitab, the Jews and the Christians. And there's quite a lot said about them uh, in the Quran, and there has been quite a lot of engagement with them, uh, sometimes negative, sometimes very positive, throughout Muslim history. And when we came, and when our parents or our parents' parents came here uh, en masse in the 50s and the 60s, um, we uh, we had an idea of what it meant to enter into an Ahlul Kitab or a Kitabi kind of society, even though as people, as Muslims were entering into uh, uh, Britain in the 1950s, uh, it was slowly beginning to change from a Kitabi Christian society to a very uh, entrenched, secular, uh, non-religious um, society. Um, so those were those are the two que uh, the, the questions. So how do we? Uh, the second question is: Well, Islam gives us um, an idea of how to engage uh, an Ahlul Kitab society, but there isn't much uh, guidance or experience on how to engage an uh, what is for all intents and purposes an atheistic society. Of course, Muslims have experienced the Dahariya, which were the kind of atheists of uh, earlier times. They were given the name the Dahariya. And our books on theology have, uh, have uh, chapters and sections dealing with them. But as a, as a polity, as a, a people who's, uh, who, has, who have significantly shaped legislation, outlook, education, entertainment, culture. Uh, we don't know how to engage an atheistic cultured society. Uh, it's work in progress and it's quite tricky. Um, one thing that is missing from all of this possibly is that there is no doubt, alhamdulillah. So today I think you're just going to have to be patient with my um, thinking uh, on the trot. Um, so these are just thoughts that are coming to me uh, and some things that I want to gel with what I've already thought I'll speak about uh, this week. Um, although we Muslims in, in Britain, for example, We've got our mosques. Uh, we've got our we've got a number of institutions. We've got our literature. We're we are now perhaps third, close to fourth generation 
uh, Muslims, definitely third generation Muslims. Um, and we are, most of us feel fairly okay with being socialized into the country that we live. We are not Muslims in Britain. We are Muslims of Britain. Uh, a huge difference. This is home for most of us. Um, and from old to young, there has been, since the uh, late 70s and the early 80s, um, what one could call an awakening in terms of religious consciousness, that I am a Muslim. And what does that mean to be a Muslim, one who surrenders to God? one who submits to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does that mean? And people have asked this question and have tried to act upon that question. And normally that action comes through uh, wanting to know what the Sharia says about what I am to do and the duties upon me and the prohibitions that I should keep away from. Uh, it's also there in terms of what are our basic beliefs. Christmas is coming and um, that all of us Muslims uh, understand that um, despite it not being a, a, a religious festival nationally, but there are many Christians in this country who take Christmas as a serious religious um, celebration. And we know that the Christian story uh, is not the Quranic Muslim story concerning Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, Isa alayhi salam. Uh, from the angle that we are convinced and uh, clear as per the Quran that he was neither crucified nor killed but it was made to appear so um, and even though we alhamdulillah uh, Allah has blessed us to maintain those core essential beliefs of Islam along with knowing what the core essential do's and don'ts are, and then it's a matter of trying to just get down to practicing them. What we tend not to have is the overall picture on the box. We have the individual pieces of the jigsaw, but we're not quite sure what the overall picture is uh, on the box. So today, I'd like to leave aside the thousand pieces that make up this beautiful jigsaw called Islam and I'd, I'd like to just look at the box to see the picture so we know what the bigger picture is and then as we start putting, putting the pieces together starting with the edges because we want to get our foundations of our basics uh, right and the basics will help us fill in the the detailed pieces uh, bit by bit. What is the picture on the box? This is really what I want to aim for uh, um, today. So I'm going to read something which is on my website, on my blog, blog stroke website, thehumbleeye.com, www.thehumbleeye, the letter I, dot com, thehumbleeye.com. And it's a piece I wrote uh, at the beginning of 2020 called Man, the Universe and Macro Theology Created in God's Image. Man, Universe and Macro Theology. And I want to just concentrate on the bit about man and universe. And inshallah, maybe next week, do something about the, the issue of uh, created in the image of God. What does that mean? 
and the hadith that uh, this idea is taken from next week. But for this week, I want to read what I've written uh, and make some comments in Charlatan. So I started by saying, apart from being storytelling creatures, we humans are also meaning-seeking creatures. Once we're fed, clothed and sheltered, we have an inner tendency to, find, to want to find purpose and meaning in things. No matter how much we're surrounded by comforts or how much our needs and wants are catered for, we have an innate drive, an innate hunger to find meaning especially in terms of life's meaning and purpose. Um, which is why uh, uh, it is said that human beings are meaning-seeking creatures. We are meaning-seeking creatures. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do is look at this broad picture on the box and this idea of meaning-seeking in very broad strokes. And I want to start right at the beginning. What beginning? Uh, uh, in the cave of Hira, uh, when the Prophet receives first revelation? No, even before that. Um, with Adam alayhi salam? No, even before the Prophet Adam peace be upon him. Right at the beginning. So, the meaning seeking, I'm reading, the meaning-seeking drive in us humans can be, can be seen in the following hadith report. So this is an authentic hadith. Abu Razin once asked the Prophet Sallallahu O Messenger of Allah, actually let's just uh, 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 read what he says. He said, Ya Rasulullah, Aina kana rabbuna qabla an yakhluqa khalqahu? O Messenger of Allah, where was our Lord, subhanAllah? This is the, um, the beginning of all things, right? Where was our Lord before he created the creation? O Messenger of Allah, where was our Lord? Where was our Lord before he created the whole creation? So the Prophet said, the Prophet answered that by saying, He was in Ama. Ama is clouds. It can be translated as clouds, or it can be translated as something void, something misty. It could be translated as obscured, like when rain falls on the on the windshield of a car and you can't clearly see, or when it's foggy outside and even if you've got your fog lights on in the car, it's still a bit hard to see. You can see shadows and sometimes you can't see anything at all. That's what Amar has the meaning of in the classical Arabic language. He was in clouds of obscurity. Okay, so I'm, I'm translating it with a kind of a, a literal touch here. He was in clouds of obs obscurity with no hawa. Hawa normally means winds. Hawa can mean desires, winds of, winds of desires. The, it's like a wind blowing. 
that's what desires quite often are. So he was in obscurity, uh, in clouds of obscurity with no wind or hawa. Hawa can also mean emptiness. Uh, hawa can mean void, a, a void with no wind below him and no wind above him. And he created his throne over the water. He was in obscurity with no no hawa below him and no hawa above him. And he created his arsh, his throne, over the water. Uh, revelation, uh, in terms of the Qur'an and the sayings of the Prophet wasallam. don't give us many windows into you know how did everything come about what was the beginning like simply because at the practical level of praying and fasting and worshiping allah and fulfilling one's duties and responsibilities it doesn't have much practical benefit and to a pre-scientific age to a pre-modern society um, the idea that the universe is you know, uh, 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 you know, larger than just the few planets that the ancients knew, okay, with a few stars kind of dotted around uh, just a little bit outside the sphere of the planets, uh, the, f the four, f uh, four or five planets that were known, or three or four planets that were known, to imagine that it could be, you know, far greater than that in size, was just something that the pre-modern mind possibly couldn't comprehend. But this is one of those windows that we uh, we are privileged to to allow to look, peer through. He was in clouds of obscurity, kanafi ama, with no hawa with no wind below him, no wind above him, and he created his his throne over the waters. There is another hadith in Sahil Bukhari, in which a group of Yemeni a group of Yemeni people came to the Prophet and they wanted to ask they wanted to ask we want to ask you about the matter what matter? the beginning of things so the Prophet said this is the hadith in Bukhari the Prophet said uh, in this hadith of Imran ibn Hussein radiallahu, he said, Allah was, can Allah, Allah was, and there was nothing before him. Let's go back to let's go back to the Arabic. Can Allah There was Allah and nothing was. Uh, besides him there was nothing other than him that might be a, a, a better translation Allah was and there was nothing uh, there was nothing else beside him and his throne was over the water he then created the heavens and the earth and wrote down everything in a register and he wrote down everything in a dhikr in a register okay so again we're given this given a window but this window uh, is very mysterious it's very it's very it's a mystic cryptic thing Allah was 
and there was nothing before him, there was nothing with him, there was nothing other than him. And then some point, I don't even want to use the word some point in time, but some point Allah created the water, created the arsh, created the pen, created the lahul mahfuz, the preserved tablet, the dhikr, where everything is written, created the heavens, created the earth. But kana fi before all of that, he was in obscurity and there was nothing with him besides him other than him. Wow, that's, you know, for the mind to try to even get to grips with that, it's quite um, astounding and it can be quite brain crushing, actually. And that's why we're not meant to reflect too, too much on that. Uh, because the circuits in our brains could get fried. What we know from, so what, I'm, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to start with where it all began. And I'm trying to get to connecting the dots and getting some picture on the box today. And we'll further look at the picture next week when we deal with uh, created in the image of God concept uh, and see what that means from an Islamic point of view, what it should should mean or what it does mean and what it mustn't mean or what it can't mean. Let me gel this idea of the beginning of our affairs with what modern science has given us as a material beginning of affairs. So we were now talking about a more religious spiritual window through these two had authentic hadiths, one of them being in Bukhari. And now we're going to look at a more naturalistic, materialistic explanation of the beginning of affairs. It's, a, it's quite a nice one, actually. Um, if anyone knows about how scientists, especially cosmologists and astrophysicists, um, can say, uh, can speak so fairly confidently about the Big Bang. Uh, it's because there was detective work going on for about a hundred years, which all the clues, by the grace of Allah, fell into, into place. So the Big Bang is currently our best scientific explanation of how the physical universe that we, we can see and, and measure uh, got here. And the, the story is something like this. In 1927, so just under 100 years ago, there was uh, a person called a scientist. He was a priest as well, a Jesuit priest called George Lamartre. And in 1927, Lamartre, while studying Einstein's theory of relativity, uh, deduced from the mathematics, deduced from all the maths, that our universe wasn't static. It wasn't just, it's always been there and it's like that. It doesn't grow, it doesn't shrink. It's just there. It's always been there and will always continue to be. He worked out that our universe isn't static as people had believed since the time of the great Greek philosophers. 
um, you know, um, a, a thousand years before Islam, the dominant theory, and it was the dominant theory up until um, the 1960s, up until 1960s, um, most scientists believed that the universe has always been there and the universe will always be there. It's just a static universe. It doesn't grow, it doesn't shrink, it's just there. How it's there, they didn't really have a clue, but it's just there. But Lamatra comes along in 1927. He says, mm, according to the numbers through the, the, the equations to do with Einstein's relativity, uh, actually, uh, the universe, according to the numbers here, should be expanding. Lamatra had no uh, observational proof. He had no other proof than, than if you read the maths in the theory of relativity, you can come out with this answer. The universe should be expanding. He had no um, no observable proof or no scientific proof other than that. Um, so most people didn't really take his uh, his ideas seriously. Even Einstein felt very uncomfortable about an expanding universe. What happens? That's 1927. By 1929, an American astronomer, his name is Edwin Hubble. His name might sound familiar because the Hubble telescope, which is out there and has been out there for many years, taking incredibly, incredible, brilliant pictures of the universe and of uh, gas clouds and, and, and planets and distant stars. The Hubble telescope is named after this guy, Edwin Hubble, who in 1929, through observation through telescopes, uh, worked out that actually galaxies are moving away from each other well this idea of the universe is expanding well Lamartre was right overjoyed he took that observation observational data which had kind of like it's clear-cut you can see it through repeated observations in through the big telescopes uh and along with the theory mathematical theory uh in 1931 um, he published his findings that, yes, the universe is indeed expanding. And now we also have observational data to back up uh, the theory. But he didn't stop there. He said, if now the universe is this big, a thousand years ago, maybe a, bit, a, a, a little while before this time, it must have been slightly smaller. If you wind back the clock a little bit more, it must have been smaller still. Remember, because the universe is expanded. So if you go back in the past, it's smaller in size. If you keep winding back the cosmic clock, the universe gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until there must have been a point in time where every, you know, all the stuff in the universe must have been condensed into a tiny, 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 tiny pinprick sized you know uh, it, they call it a singularity okay um lamartre called it the primeval at, prime uh, primordial atom or the primeval atom into an infinitesimally small size all the stuff in the universe was condensed and crushed or condensed into all of into that small pinprick of a point i mean it's not a pinprick it's millions of times smaller and at some point, that pinprick of uh, uh, stuff exploded 
and that's how all of the material came out and over millions of years called and clumped together forming uh, forming stars and planets and galaxies and they worked out mathematically that that if you wind back the clock you have to wind it back 13.8 billion years the word billion here is 1000 million okay so let's say 14 billion years 14,000 million years ago the universe started from a an incredibly small point and it expanded and someone gave that process that's the name the big bang the big bang now lamatra said if it all exploded in a big bang and now the universe is whatever size it is and we are 13.8 billion years later on a bang must have released must have released yeah, uh, radiation. So the universe must have a temperature. Of course, it's not going to be as hot as it was in the beginning, because the universe has grown, and the, uh, and the warmth has to spread out over a larger area. It's a bit like if you if you close your sitting room doors and you turn on the central heating, and your and your room gets really really hot. But then if you open the sitting room doors, okay, and let's just say it's got more than one door. It's got one door into the kitchen, one door into uh, the hallway sooner or later that same heat in the sitting room is going to is going to make its way out into the kitchen and into the hallway and in the sitting room and the temperature will even out to if it was 21 degrees in your sitting room by the time it evens out an even temperature all in these three places is going to be roughly about you know just say 15 degrees uh on average everywhere so that's what happened in the universe lamato says that's what's should have happened. So we should now, if we were to measure the universe, it should have a temperature of a few degrees above absolute zero. Well, lo and behold, the last piece of evidence in this in this detective case came about in 1964 when two astronomers discovered what we now call the microwave radio uh, the, the microwave uh, background radiation of the universe basically they detected that temperature just a few degrees above absolute zero and it was a done and dusted thing the big bang model fits all the observable um, observable uh, evidences and it's our best theory to date about the physical origins of the universe wow um, there's nothing in the Quran that says Allah created the universe in one second or no seconds. There's nothing in the uh, in the Quran or the Hadith that say that that, uh, that He created the universe uh, in you know over billions of years. It's silent. So when the Quran is silent about some worldly thing, then we can believe in that worldly thing, provide uh, uh, providing there is some serious proof or solid reason to believe in that thing that doesn't just apply to uh, scientific things that can apply to medicine that can apply to um, anything to do uh, with the world i don't need to know a proof in the quran or hadith if 
the continent of America exists. All I need to have is worldly proof that there is such a continent across the Atlantic from Britain. No, obviously we know there is. It's not like, well, it's not mentioned in the Quran Hadith, therefore I can't believe it. No, uh, that's um, that's not anything to do with intentions. That's just a ridiculous, ignorant, un-Islamic, un-Islamic way of thinking or even talking. The Prophet did not tell us to think like this. None of the early scholars and great imams ever taught us to think like this. To think like this is a wicked bid'ah, okay, because it's it's twisting uh, what the Qur'an came down uh, to teach us. So why mention all this? Well, the Muslim is someone who wants to grow in beneficial knowledge. That I now know my Lord, Allahu Akbar, created a universe that is 14,000 million years old. And it's about 15 billion light years across. Okay, so if I got on a piece of light traveling at 186,000 miles per second, in one second, light travels 186,000 miles. In one second, a piece of, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 lightning, if it could, will travel around the earth seven times in one second, seven times in one second. The universe is 15,000 uh, 15, uh, million light years across. SubhanAllah. This is just not, it's not like 93 million miles to the sun, right? So it takes the light from the sun about seven and a half minutes to reach the earth. Right, traveling at 186,000 miles per second. This is 15,000 million light years across. And what that does for a Muslim, a believer, is Allahu Akbar. Look at the glory and the majesty of God. I mean, I knew the, the, the cosmos, the universe was large, but that large? Wow. With all of this, all of this stuff in, in it, all of this mind-boggling stuff, wow. And what happens is the wow factor makes us appreciate the glory, makes us appreciate uh, Allah's acts of creation uh, even more. That's the theory anyway. Let me wind back. Last, last five minutes, inshallah. So we're told in the hadith that that Allah was in clouds of obscurity. Now there is a very popular hadith um, that many of us grew up with when we were uh, in our younger days. But unfortunately the hadith is totally not authentic at all. It's, it's a it's a fabrication in terms of can you say the process and says it um, just one point why am i being some of you would have noticed and actually one of you did ask the question um some weeks ago uh why is it important to be a bit finicky on is the hadith 
uh, is the ascription back to the Prophet authentic or not? Um, simply because the Prophet said hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari. Whoever says about me that which I didn't say, let him take his seat on the fire of hell. And in another hadith, again in Sahih al-Bukhari, Whoever intentionally lies about me, let him take his seat in the fire of hell. So intentional lying will land the person in hell five, they're not careful, and unintentional lying, not being careful, not intentionally lying, but not being careful by following the scholars, the best of our abilities, the hadith scholars, whoever says about me that which I didn't say, let him take his seat in the fire of hell, which is so, which is why we have to be careful on what we ascribe to the Prophet. So there is this hadith ascribed to him, but all the hadith masters say it's not an authentic hadith. Kuntu kanzun, kuntu kanzun la urifu, fa ahbabtu an urifu, fa khalaptu khalqan, fa araftahum bi, fa arifuni. I was a hidden treasure. The word khafiyan comes in some narrations. I was a hidden treasure that was not known, and I loved to be known. So I created creation for them to know me. Fa'arifuni, so they came to know me. So we're being told here that the reason that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created creation is because he wanted he not not when I say he wants, I don't mean he needed or he wants in the sense that you and I want out of a kind of desire or a liking. Allah is not in need of anything. So I'm using language that we must go back to the basics about Allah, that Allah is not in need of anything. He doesn't resemble anything of his creation. And even when we talk about Allah in terms of things of creation, so for example, Allah getting angry, it doesn't mean that his blood boils, right? And his eyes go red and frothing at the mouth. No, that, that's what we humans do. But Allah, the Quran says, there is nothing like Allah. Okay. Um, so in this case, uh, when Allah wanted to be known, so he created creation in order to know him. Now, someone will say, well, okay, but it's a false hadith. It's true that it's not a hadith, but our scholars generally say, that the overall meaning of the idea of Allah creating the creation that we may know him is substantiated, is proven from the Qur'an itself and from what Ibn Abbas, the great scholar from the Sahaba said from the Qur'an first. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and I think it's in, uh, <coughs> in the 65th chapter of the Qur'an, let me just uh, get it here. Yeah. 65, 12, 65th surah, verse 12. Uh, verse 12. Allah who led the Khalaka Allah it is who created the seven heavens 
and of the earth a similar number very cryptic cryptic we're not quite sure what that fully or exactly means seven earths we're not quite sure his command descends through them that you may know Allah has power over everything and that Allah encompasses all things in knowledge as Ibn Rajab al-Hambali says this is a proof to tell us that Allah created the creation that you would know that you may know something about Allah in this verse two things are mentioned about Allah uh, uh, that Allah has power over everything and that his knowledge encompasses everything that you may know God something about God Ibn Abbas and some say Mujahid his student one of the two it's authentically reported from one of the two when they said about the verse وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ Allah didn't create the jinn nor mankind except that they may worship him except that they may worship him Ibn Abbas or Mujahid said except that they may know him why? because we cannot worship the one whom we don't know which is why Surah Fatiha Surah Al-Fatiha Right at the beginning, it tells us about Allah, who Allah is, or something about Allah before it tells us to worship Him. Before it says, You alone do we worship, you alone do we seek aid and assistance from. It tells us that, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alamin, that Allah is Rabb, is Lord, Rabbul Alamin, Lord of the worlds. He is Ar Rahman, Ar Rahim, merciful and mercy giving, Maliki Yawmiddin owner of the day of judgment or master of the day of judgment we learn th three or four things about Allah four names about Allah and those four names have an effect on the heart and our relationship with him even before we declare you alone do we worship Allah is Rabb Rabb in the Arabic language supposing we were listening to this at, at the time of the Prophet or early Islam and we were we were we were nurtured in, on fine Arabic or you know standard spoken Arabic of the time. We'd know that Rab is a Lord that cultivates that nurtures nurtures something from a very small weak state into something flowered and accomplished. Allah nurtures us through His kindness, through His love, through His compassion, through His care. He nourishes us physically, he nourishes us emotionally, he nourishes us spiritually, he nourishes us intellectually. He provides for us, he caters for us. And all of those sentiments, all of those actions bring about a feeling of love. There is a level of love for the one who nurtures us. A bit like how mothers nurture babies when they're young. And there is that bond of love that naturally and instinctively develops. Then knowing that Allah is a Rabb brings about love when we reflect upon its, its general meaning. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. He's merciful. 
compassionate. He pardons and he forgives. It gives us hope. Hope. That I know that I'm gonna I'm going to stumble so many times and I'm I'm gonna miss the mark here and there. And what kind of life have I been living up to now? But knowing that Allah is Ar-Rahman, by his nature, he is all merciful. And by his action, he is mercy giving. There is always hope. I can always mend my ways. And Allah, if I am sincerely sorry and sincerely repent, Allah will forgive me and will look mercifully and kindly on me. It gives me hope, great hope. Not just for my present, but for my future as well. Of course, that brings about a sort of dread because Allah is the owner and the master of the Day of Judgment and we're kind of accountable to him. And that kind of brings a, a, a sense of intrepidation and a sense of fear, khawf. So look what these three names or four names did. Rab, Mahabba, love of Allah. Ar-Rahman, Raja, hope in Allah's mercy and forgiveness. Maliki Yawmideen, Allah's Malik, master, khawf, fear of Allah and his punishment. And what is ibadah, worship? Our scholars will tell us worship is the, the three ingredients that go to making up worship is love, fear and hope. And at high levels, there is still love, fear and hope, but not for created things. For in the beginning, the, 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 at the beginning, the believer, he or she fears the anger of Allah in the form of punishments and hellfire. At the higher level of the level of the of the awliya, let alone the level of the anbiya, uh, one doesn't fear hellfire as much as they fear Allah being upset with them, Allah being displeased with them. Romeo doesn't care what type of slaps Juliet might give him for being for behaving wrongly. What will cut Romeo's hearts to heart? heart to bits is if Juliet just turns away from him doesn't speak to him nicely that will cut him up more than any physical punishment because when love hope and fear get to those levels it's a different reality but we knew something about God so where does that leave us just for today, the take-home point, that you may know through how. Well, this is tying the dots here. One of the things that we need to do for the people of our country, in their drifting away from their purpose of creation, is to restore is to restore the remembrance of Allah back into their hearts to restore the remembrance of God into their hearts and how can we overcome that atheism yeah we might try to win arguments sophisticated arguments here and there or we may do the opposite and just kind of point our finger and say look you you, you you've just damned yourself and not have that prophetic concern and care for them, which is not something we should be doing uh, in that uh, aggressive way. 
But the Quran seems to offer, it kind of tells us a lot about the faliki proofs, the, the signs of Allah in the cosmos, in the falak. And repeatedly the Quran, this way or that way, asks us to see the signs in the sky, the signs in the heaven, the signs of the, Allah's creational signs on the earth, and just to try to reflect upon them and, and reflect upon what they could mean, what they suggest, what these signs point to. The Quran says, Inna fi khalqi samawati wal ard. Indeed, in the creation of the heavens and the earth, in the alternation of the night and the day, there are signs for those who for there are signs for those with intelligence. And then who are these of who are the intelligent ones? The Ulul Albab. Those who remember Allah, they remember God, standing, sitting, or lying down. And they contemplate, they ponder over the creation of the heavens and the earth. We need to strengthen our own iman through such tafakkur contemplation and contemplation isn't just looking but it's looking to see the manner the meaning behind the form it's looking to see what does allah want me to learn from this another this looking this contemplation not just well you know I'm in my car and a tree passed me by or some, something very nice in the sky passed me by. That's looking, but it's not the kind of nadr or looking that Allah, Allah wants the heart to engage in this nadr, in this looking, so that it becomes reflection, contemplation, pondering. Imam, -Sufi, Imam Sufyan al-Thawri, rahmatullah Ali. One of the great imams roughly at the time of Imam Abu Hanifa. He said, Al-Mar'u Ida kanat lahu fikra fafikulli shayin lahu ibra. A person when he is given to contemplation will draw a valuable lesson in everything. And that's why the Prophet says in the sound hadith, Tafakkuru fi Allah illa la tafakkuru fi Allah. Reflect upon the creation of God, but don't reflect upon God. We need to be doing that for our own uh, benefit and strength of Iman and connection to Allah and deepening our love, our awe, our majesty, our fear, our hope uh, in him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we need to be inviting people back to this basic intuitive feeling that, look, Okay, the Big Bang, but the Big Bang, just because we know the details of how the Big Bang came about and Stephen Hawkins in his career and lifetime kind of wrote in detail how this, 
the temperature, the state of the universe was, uh, you know, every, you know, one second after the Big Bang, 10 seconds, uh, one year, 100 years, a million years and whatever. And even if we know it for sure, the mechanics, but merely knowing the mechanism of something doesn't mean that there isn't a creator behind that mechanism. Merely because I know how an iPhone works in and out because I opened it and I took all the pieces apart and put them back together. It doesn't mean that Steve Jobs wasn't the creator of that, uh, that awesome piece of tech. Just because we know the material origins and workings of the universe doesn't mean that there wasn't uh, an agent behind its creation. Um, that is what we need to remind people of. And also to ask them, well, when you look up and you know that these things weren't there and they are there, they've been created or, or anything that came into existence after not existing needs something to bring it into existence. So what brought all of this thing that wasn't there in the first place? 13.8 before 13.8 billion years ago before this big bang thing and how did it all get there in the first place when it wasn't there in the uh, when it wasn't there everything that comes into existence after not existing needs something to bring it into existence and we need to help polish their fitra and see that actually the answer doesn't just lie in, well, because we know that about the Big Bang in terms of the me mechanics, it doesn't actually answer the question uh, or, dismiss, uh, or, or, or it doesn't actually dismiss the need for there being an agent behind the me mechanism. We believe and we want to restore that belief that the mechanism of the universe has an agent whether we call that agent Allah, the creator, God, but it is him who it points to. And most people today don't who live in live in an environment and in an educational system where they are where it, it is assumed merely because we know the process, the mechanism, there is no need for an agent. But no, the mechanism doesn't unfold itself okay um, and that is what people are struggling with today so we need to approach people not with this high and mighty attitude oh look at you misguided so-and-so people you atheists and 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 mock them and and smirk at them and and kind of insult them that's not the prophetic way rather somehow it is like the Prophet said, my last hadith, Bashiru wala tu nafiru, yassiru wala tu asiru, hadith in Sahih Muslim. Give good, good, give good news and do not push people away. Do not push people away and make things easy for them and do not make things difficult. So our way in Dawah must be the way of Tabshir and Taysir of giving good news and making things easy. If people's fitra have been corrupted today, it's not all their fault because they were born into an environment 
that was already corrupt. So we need a little compassionate understanding of how to engage the post-religious age and the post-religious Britain or the post-religious Europe that we now inhabit. And if someone says, well, that's not my country or my continent, be sure that there will be pockets, growing pockets of post-religious attitudes, atheistic attitudes, spreading its way and infesting the globe as a whole. Uh, modernity can't but help um, spread this particular um, germ. And so we ask Allah Jalla Jalalu for tawfiq that he keep us safe upon right guidance by his grace and his mercy, that we don't uh, offend him and uh, block our hearts to his guidance and mercy. And we ask Allah that he make us a benefit uh, <coughs> to others and not a harm and a hindrance for them coming closer to the divine reality, which is God. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a long session, longer than I way longer than I anticipated. Are there any questions, inshallah? Brother Hassan, if uh, anyone's still awake, uh, if there's any questions, inshallah. Uh, this is a good one. Any advice for someone who struggles to start the habit of reading? The only way to break a habit is to engage it. Uh, in the in this case, okay, uh, it's you just pick up a book, and at the beginning, just pick up a pick up a book that will interest me. So let's just say, you know what? If I pick up a religious book, right, by by the time I get to page one, I'm going to fall asleep, or I'm just going to get put off. Then pick up a book about a subject that you like. You know, if it's about football, just read. All right, if it's about you know computer video games then read if it just happens to be about the latest film star then read although just be careful what you read because we don't want to be reading things which are clear cut haram and then he slept with her and she slept with him whatever but the idea is re uh, read something that interests us to get into the habit of reading and then slowly and steadily wean ourselves onto beneficial reading beneficial reading <clears throat> obviously religious reading is beneficial reading but there are also secular books that are beneficial um, to read as well so that would be my advice if it's about <clears throat> uh, children um, uh, one of the tried and tested ways is uh, when children are young or before a couple of our children make sure that we are readers and that we uh, read them bedtime stories and we get them to read books and that we have and books in the house that are visible not somewhere in some closet somewhere that no one goes to but in in every room in the house in the sitting room there should be a bookshelf right uh in the kids playroom there should be a a, a bookshelf in basically the the major rooms should have bookshelves and that the children should see <laughs> mom and dad reading okay reading quran reading hadith reading this reading that so they get into a habit of reading as well because I'm very truthfully, the the intellectual level of people today, and I, of course it's to do with the education system, it's a dumbed down level. It's a real dumbed down level. And part of that reason, and there's many reasons, okay, one just has to read um, Neil, uh, not, well, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, but also John Taylor Gatton's uh, um, uh, dumbing us down, uh, how over the last 
you know, since the 80s or the, or the 60s and 70s onwards, education has moved away from its traditional role. Um, but we Muslims can't afford to dumb ourselves down in reading, and ours is a reading tradition. And really, um, really select the videos and the YouTube videos that you watch, but read more than you watch. Read more than you watch. If someone doesn't read more than they watch, their level of discourse, why? Because we end up watching people quite often who don't raise us up, who actually pull us down. Many, uh, many da'is, many khatibs, I'm not talking about their level of uh, English is atrocious because they come from a foreign land, and that's really not their fault in that sense. Born and raised here, and you purposely want to take the, the member of the pulpit and your English level of, of reading, of discourse, of articulation is atrocious, then you have no right to have, you know, be just be a nice, good Muslim, praying and fasting and whatever. But you can't be, you can't be um, talking to people because you're supposed to be shepherding them and lifting their game, raising their game, not lowering it. And the biggest proof of this is what? The Quran comes down in what? In Arabic slang? Comes on down street, it's street Arabic, like the Egyptians are speaking today? Or does it come down in 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 the in the most beautiful fusha? Because it wants to explain some spiritual realities that you need language for. It needs to explain some mysteries of life and the world and God because and you need that language and it wants to raise people's intellectual way of thinking. So inshallah ta'ala and dua um and inshallah ta'ala I am confident inshallah in, uh, by the grace and mercy of Allah that um whoever starts on this path for the sake of Allah one more thing remember the first a verse of the Quran to be revealed. Iqra bismi rabbika It wasn't just Iqra, read. But it was Iqra bismi rabbika Read in the name of your Lord. So when we have a near intention of reading for the sake of drawing closer to Allah, even if we're not actually reading a quote-unquote religious book, but I'm reading something just to relax my mind or to improve my vo vocabulary or to help me explain something important to someone else for the sake of Allah, then that is reading for the sake of Allah in the name of your Lord. But just reading, it's good just to start off like that if we can't start off any other way. But in the end, it needs to be Bismi khalaq. Um, May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us um, um, tawfiq. How we speak on the streets and um, thereafter, that's that's okay when we speak if we speak, speak East London slang or whatever, but in our formal discourse, in writing especially and in khutbas, and and to some degree in 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 lessons and classes, um, there needs to be a slight upping of the level. Uh, no person should be happy if. Some, if a lay person says, oh, you know, that scholar speaks at my level, which is fine. Brilliant. But if he's speaking at my level on everything religious, that means he's doing injustice. He's taking he's also making some things which are very complicated and he's actually 
uh, he's not simplifying them, that would be fine. He's oversimplifying them because there are some concepts that you just can't, it doesn't matter what language you use, you can't make it simple, which is why lay people aren't obliged to know certain of those concepts. But of course, speaking in a language that people can understand, and, and it, it is a shame because if you look at some of the, you know, if you look at the books that we read from Waterstones, from Foils or from Amazon and the level of English there in a normal book that we may read, you know, part of our university curriculum, part of our, you know, our, our, uh, what we do as a profession and whatever, the language, the standard of language, even if it's a novel, even if it's a novel, the language is at a particular, the English is at a particular level. And then you see Muslims writing. And then the dhikr that comes into mind is But inshallah things are changing because subhanallah there are some young brothers and sisters and some young sheikhs who are, whose books are amazing subhanallah truly amazing and there are some blogs uh, quite often written by sisters more than brothers they seem to have a flair with the pen than, than brothers do um, and their blogs are really much they're not scholars but and they'll make make that clear but their blogs are really beneficial they are spiritually and intellectually uh, rich and uh, worth you know worth uh, pursuing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best sorry if I'm a bit a, a bit tough on that it's just something that has been passionate that I've been passionate about um, since the 80s and um I do still feel that we might be letting down the side. And the first thing that we have to do is make sure we get a decent, if, if we don't know Arabic, at least get a good, decent translation of the Qur'an. Um, Professor Abdul Halim's translation, or, uh, or this particular one, that uh, Ahmed Zaki Ahmed's translation, or this translation, which has just come out recently, um, it's a new edition. You, you have to get the white, the 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 Turaf publication edition. Uh, Mufti Taqi's the Noble Quran. There is an earlier two volume translation, but this is a uh, this has been gone over and edited, so it's a really good translation. Um, these are some of the Professor Abdul Halim I mentioned as well. Um, otherwise, uh, there are some substandard translations that really do the, do do the translation of the Qur'an a grave injustice. Any final questions? Um, was that, I'm, if, you know, please do give, it, um, give your feedback to Brother Hassan. If they are a bit, if these sessions are a bit long, which I perfectly understand, I will try to cut them down. And if, if there are things that, if there are things that you want me to discuss with yourselves, um, please do let me know, inshallah ta'ala. Um, currently, um, it's, I'm keeping it very general. Um, there is a more specific class on, on is it Wednesdays? Um, it's called Faith Foundation, 7 o'clock in the evening, where I'm taking a small text of 40 hadith, not the famous 40 hadith, another 40 hadith, <coughs> uh, by Sheikh Ali Hassan al-Halabi, rahmatullah alayhi. And we're just going through that. And we've only done hadith number one. It's online at the moment. So this coming Tuesday will be the next class. Inshallah, you can join me then, inshallah. That class is about, with Q&A, it was about 50 minutes, inshallah. Any final questions? Brother Hassan, have any anything that I've missed?
Okay. Jazakumullah um, khair. Please keep me in your du'as. Um, some of you might be traveling around for for the Christmas holidays. Uh, inshallah ta'ala, um, just remember that um, we want to reach out to restore the remembrance of God in the hearts of those who have lost it or in the hearts of those who have never known it in their lives, very much to do with the society as well. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he makes us of benefit to our fellow citizens uh, in the countries that we live. Thank you very much for your patience, all of you, Brother Peter, Sister Asma, and others who have uh, who've, uh, who've sent messages, messages, mashallah. I have to say uh, that, you know, because some of you, subhanAllah, um, some of the comments that you leave are really generous. And I have to, um, I have to say that, you know, uh, first and foremost, they're too generous. Um, they paint me as being someone really, um, really important or big, and that's not the reality at all. Um, but um, Abu Bakr who was once praised, and um, he replied to the person who praised him excessively by saying, Oh Allah, forgive me for what they say and make me better than what they think. Um, so really, I can, I can only say that, uh, knowing that um, you say it out of love and respect, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you. But may Allah forgive, may Allah forgive me for what has been said about me, and make me better than what you not think I am. Um, but inshallah ta'ala, I do believe it's reflective of your good adab and your good intentions and your desire to draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhanahu rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun. Wassalamun ala al-mursaleen. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Oh.